Hello, folks, and welcome. My name's Brad Schleicher. I'm a director of higher education Marcom Solutions here at Salesforce, and we're really looking forward to a great conversation today with four leaders about what it takes to create a truly student-centered approach to higher ed marketing. Now, this is part of Salesforce's sponsored session at the AMA Higher Education Symposium, and we're really excited that this session will also be rebroadcast afterward as Volt at AMA. This is the first episode of a new podcast series called Volt at. That's produced by our friends at Volt. They are the higher education marketing publication. They also present live events and key insights from higher education thought leaders. And so this conversation should run about a full hour. But if you have questions, please drop us a line there. We'll be happy to connect you with our panelists for any of your questions. So without further ado, let's get started. Joining me today as co-moderator, we have Kevin Renton. He's principal of eCity Interactive and Volt.edu. And for our panel, we have Eric Greenberg. He's a senior director of marketing strategy and operations at the Wharton School. We also have Kate Ledger, assistant vice chancellor of marketing at the University of Pittsburgh. We also have Kevin Tyler. He's an account director at the higher ed marketing agency, Simpson Scarborough, and formerly the director of communications at UCLA School of Nursing. And last but certainly not least, we have Mark Mashaw. He's a vice president of growth and marketing at Campus Wire. Welcome, everyone. Very, very excited to have you all here. And just as a primer, we're here to really do a couple of things. One, really unpack the present landscape of higher ed marketing today, really understand the challenges leaders like you all are facing, really dive into some of the benefits that you have of knowing your audience better, some strategies you have of knowing your audience better, and really establishing a strong brand for your institutions. And then ultimately, how to best leverage technology, considering all of those other points to really help you reach your goals. And so we're going to dive right in. For the first question, this is really around the current landscape and, you know, please introduce yourselves as well. Uh, first question is really around, you know, with so much discussion in higher ed right now of the impending enrollment cliffs, the very value of a higher ed degree in question, along with a host of other pressures that are really facing today's higher ed Marcom teams. Uh, I mean, it goes without saying, it's pretty easy to have a pretty negative outlook. So this is a two-part question. Uh, first, you know, as a Marcom leader, from your perspective, what are your biggest pressures? And then two, you know, what are the biggest opportunities that you see to really drive change? And then ultimately, what gets you excited about this space? And so, Kevin, I'd like to start with you. Again, two parts. Give us some perspective on your role. What are your biggest pressures? And really, what are those biggest opportunities to drive change? Thanks, Brad. Um, I'm Kevin Tyler. Thanks for having me. I'm an account director at Simpson Scarborough. I also host Volt's other podcast, Higher Voltage, a couple episodes monthly. One just dropped today. So uh, take a listen to that. So in terms of pressures, uh, there are many, right? It's easy to have that negative outlook because of so many obstacles that stand in the way of higher ed. I think first, one of those things is diversity, equity, and inclusion. The student population is changing rapidly, and higher education is going to need to keep up with those changes in terms of how we talk about things, uh, how the brand is managed from that perspective. I think price and access is going to be one of those uh, significant obstacles for higher ed. I think that the way the higher ed brand is perceived is going to be very interesting. The brand belongs to so many different kinds of people who all have different kinds of expectations of how it should perform and who it should stand up for and why. I think that is going to be one of those things that is an obstacle because everything that we do now in higher ed is a, is a marketing tactic, tactic, whether we like it or not. I know we're going, to, we're going to talk a little bit about that later on in this chat. And then, of course, more companies, especially during COVID, 
dropping the degree requirement. And that makes the argument for college uh, much different. And how do we shift that conversation around the value of a degree? And then um, the shrinking pool of applicants that everyone has been talking about for a number of years already. But in terms of opportunities for change, to me, I think a focus on rankings, we need to drop that. Rankings, to me, are one of the most dangerous ways to, to rate or assess the value of a college education. There is a perfect school for every person, and having an outside entity rank or rate to those colleges, I think it's just kind of part of the problem of why we find ourselves in the situation we're in right now. I think learning from other industries is going to be a super important piece. I understand the value of looking at what higher ed competitors and peers are doing at their institutions, but I think taking a broader look at tech industry, at Fortune 5s, all of these other places that are making moves around higher ed as they meet uh, their audiences where they are. I'm a firm believer that in terms of marketing and communication, higher ed can really take a page from the TikTok, YouTube, Instagram book, because those are the audiences that they're after. And it's a message that really kind of also belongs to higher ed about bringing your whole self and being a creator and all these things. And I think those are messages that higher ed can probably learn or use on their own. Two more creative partnerships to meet students where they are and whatever their needs are, their, their, their basic needs, whether it's childcare, food, shelter, et cetera. Those are things because higher ed's role is broadening, having access to mental health and food, banks, et cetera. Those are things that higher ed now has to do. So those partnerships are going to be important. And then the last one, and I think is one of the most important ones, is just being more student-centered as opposed to institution-centered. And that means understanding where your audiences are coming from, what they need, and how you can best support them so that the messages that you're putting out into the world are experienced in real life. You mentioned price and the value there. And one of the things then I'd like to segue into Mark, because I think Mark has an interesting background in the, the work that he's done. So your pressures, Mark, but I'd also like to hear what you think about price and value and, and give an overview of what you're doing at campus at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The challenges that I think schools face are so radically different depending on where they sit in the market. You know, if you're able to exist as an institution and you're able to enroll, you know, sub 5% of people that come into your application funnel, your challenges are wildly different than a school who is struggling to hit enrollment goals, struggling to find and recruit students. And so your, your challenges are around your branding and your positioning and your service offering versus more existential challenges, whether you can stand to, you know, exist. And so what we're doing at campus, you know, we have a tech company DNA. Uh, we're a, the purest startup you can imagine at the moment. And we're looking to create two-year degrees, fully online, fully live instruction to try and help students you know, maybe knock out the first two years of their degree in a way that is affordable, that gives them access, and that positions them to go on to a great four-year school, or maybe something else, depending on what they've done, but helping them earn a credential that has value in the market and gives them flexibility and, and in a way that is not going to burden them with tremendous amount of debt. Cool. Opportunities and challenges. Kate, where, where is it with the University of Pittsburgh? 
So what's interesting, I think I'm going to present what I think is both an opportunity and challenge, of course, which is just digital transformation. I think it touches on a lot of what Kevin talked about. You know, it's it's important when you think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and where, you know, different populations stand on access to, you know, the digital world and how we are communicating. I think it also touches on learning from other industries. Higher ed is just really slow at things, especially in the marketing world. And so this idea of how do we connect the dots for these technologies, your CRM and your website and the data, and how do we connect the people in the institution because we are typically, and especially at the University of Pittsburgh, very decentralized. And so, you know, we're sitting in our silos using different tools. And I think connecting those dots in this digital world is super important and a challenge for all of us. Kate, real quick, would you say that, you know, you mentioned being decentralized. Do you think that a lot of these conversations about technologies are maybe pushing the envelope for becoming more collaborative as an institution? Are some of these through the lens of technology of which this is happening? Or is are, is this kind of a two-pronged approach to, to just evolving as an institution as a whole? I think that the important piece of this is that leadership comes on board and understands the power of the technology. And until you have that piece and sort of that top-down push, it's really hard to have the conversations at the lower levels. It's got to be a priority for the institution, which means a priority for leadership. Gotcha. Eric, would love to bring you in here as well, coming from Wharton's perspective, opportunities and challenges. Same to you. Sure. Thank you. Um, this is a great conversation. I think I'd love to have a, a beer at the pub with all of you guys and uh, talk about this for hours. This is some really good stuff. So a couple of things. It's interesting, this, this sort of paradox that Mark hinted at of these of schools and where they are, because you have a lot of schools, well, the schools that can sort of maybe afford the technologies and the people don't have the pressures to change in that direction. And the schools that have the need to change can't afford the people and the technology. So it's this interesting paradox that we're trying to sort of navigate through, depending on where you are in, in that hierarchy, I guess, of, of wealth, maybe. But also with regards to what Kate was saying and this need for moving into a digital transformation, what that looks like from my perspective is that there's sort of this growing demand for the results of a centralized marketing unit from senior executives at the at universities, but without the recognition that we operate in an environment which is so often uh, decentralized. And so how do you once again try to navigate within that space? I know that it can be done successfully, but I also know that it's, it's slow and it requires patience and it is definitely the long game. But it does happen and is a combination of, I think, sort of an internal grassroots movement that needs to happen to push that combined with the environmental factors of the, the current environment, which Kevin was talking about, and this need to change, because I, I actually don't have a negative outlook on where things are. It's, I think you have a negative outlook only if you want things to always be the same forever. What we actually have is an opportunity to change. And now we're, what we are trying to do collectively is figure out how to influence our organizations to change and adapt to the current environments. One of the things I'd like to add also as an opportunity, and I think um, still kind of largely unaddressed uh, wholly in the industry is the adult learner population. And especially now, you know, with the 40 some odd million people who have some college, no degree, getting those credits, certificate programs, whatever, we are now in a time of significant job shifting. And so what is the opportunity for universities to help fill 
the, uh, you know, the skills gap for people who are shifting jobs, changing jobs, whatever it is that they're doing, there is a very critical role that universities can play there. And I think that they can step into that space very easily. Kevin, I, I agree. I agree with that. And and in terms of sort of opportunities in the idea of embracing technology, you know, I know a lot of schools, again, sort of across the spectrum of fully online adult serving, but a, on a different example, you know, I know that Morehouse is doing some interesting work online with a college completion program where they're, you know, have an opportunity to get folks that I know that maybe started there, but didn't succeed or other folks who have that, you know, pretty high ambition. And they're doing some interesting stuff online and they're, you know, kind of showing an interesting embrace of sort of how to do things a little bit differently. Eric, you mentioned one of the things there that, you know, centralized teams or, or siloed teams, it's, it's people and resources. Now, all of us within the, the, the marketing technology world, within higher ed, the war for talent has, has never been so hot. The, the opportunities for people out in the market whether it's with higher wages, working conditions, different opportunities, what are we doing to actually engage, attract, upskill our teams to keep them here? And, and what's your view on that issue? I'll, I'll jump back to you first, Eric. And- yeah, well, and first, boy, oh boy, I wish I had the answer to this one because uh, <laughs> we are also not immune to the great resignation that's happening. And as I think everybody is, Kevin, you and I talked about the other day just the idea that pre-pandemic universities used to have the edge on the sort of work-life balance, and if not pay. And now post-pandemic, we really don't have that edge anymore. I was looking the other day, sort of looking, I work in the marketing technology area, and the skills that make up my team, there's something like 40,000 remote positions that we're competing against. And because schools are trying to figure out their way with no remote at all, hybrid or fully remote, and I, I don't think most of them have done fully remote. And so we, I think, are now at a disadvantage because we're now competing in the general marketplace and in realizing that maybe we don't have the pay and the flexibility to compete for the actual talent needed to get us to the next level. So there's a, a couple of things I was sort of thinking about with regards to this question. One, I think really we got to try to work our own personal networks that are in our geographical area. We do probably know collectively a lot of people in, in a given area right now to try to reach out to personally with open positions. I think people just like that and being and being uh, personally recruited uh, as maybe one option. The second thing I was thinking of was maybe we have to begin to apply some of this marketing strategy towards our own recruitment, which is the idea of, okay, maybe we have landing pages and funnels and we have people who call up and, hey, man, you'd be a great fit for this. And we try to basically work it, you know, the way that we are with marketing to prospects. And maybe we even have more control because we're actually doing some of that from, from the marketing standpoint. Although in universities, we are all so very bound by university policies, which is, makes it really difficult to try to even create sometimes job descriptions that, that are competitive in the marketplace. But ultimately, I think that universities are going to have to evolve and look at what does it mean for their non-student facing, non-faculty facing administrative staff, because a lot of companies have not even renewed their leases and they're working remotely. So it's definitely not a fad. And now we've got to figure out how to respond. Kate, you you mentioned digital transformation and we we were talking about the centralization or the the coming together of teams and just the way of doing marketing, especially at a major institution. And I know you're frankly, living this right now, can you give a little bit of perspective on, you know, not just the the recruiting, but the retention and, and really kind of the upskilling of your staff to, to really accommodate this transformation? Yes, I think, you know, 
Eric makes really great points about, you know, recruiting these people to our institutions and we're bound by university policies that make it really hard to do that in a way, you know, we can be very aggressive in recruiting a prospective student uh, that we can't do in the same way with staff, for example, and even in the retention of it, what I have found to be really powerful and I'm concerned about losing with so much going to remote work is being on campus and being engaged with the population that you're storytelling about, right? So that the we are back on campus about two or three days a week at the University of Pittsburgh. Those are like the best days. I mean, I may sit on Zoom all day, but I make sure I take time to go out and walk campus because the energy I feel from the students, you know, moving around and running into faculty and people I know, I mean, that I think you lose that from a remote perspective. And so retention right now for me looks like getting people into the office, seeing people in person, experiencing campus and all of the wonderful reasons why we work here in the first place. Those are two very super interesting points that Eric and Kate just made. And I think that's part of the power of a brand. I think higher ed institutions typically rely on brand for student recruitment. But really, when you position the brand correctly, it's not just student recruitment. It's also faculty, staff, leadership recruitment. It's about putting a stake in the ground about what you exist for and what your philosophies are around life. And the way that brands, especially among Gen Z folks and just how the world is moving, that is the most important thing. You can't have a brand for students and a brand for faculty and staff and leadership. And so when we think about how universities and colleges will have to reposition themselves in the marketplace, it can't just be for students uh, because then there won't be anyone to teach them or serve them or do all the other important roles on all the college campuses in the country. Interesting point there, Kevin, in the sense of, you know, the brand for the students can be different from, from an employment brand, say to speak. But take them for an institution that is, you know, a leading in its field in a certain place and the brand is strong. And then a marketer comes into that institution, but we're not using leading edge technologies. We're not using a leading MarTech stack. We're not doing what commercial companies are doing in that world. How does that brand then match up to its educational brand where it is a leader? I don't have the answer to that, Uh, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I do think, though, we're at a time when the things that higher ed talks about aren't as valuable as they used to be, right? The way that we talk about school from the beginning of time to now, or what got us here is not going to be what gets us to next. And so we have to change our vernacular. We have to un- have a better understanding of our audiences, where they come from, what they need. We have to offer the things that they are looking for. We have to provide the support that we promise in the, all the materials that we send out into the world. But when it comes time for a school that does a great job at one thing, you have to understand what the culture is that exists around that and why is it good there and tell the story around that. Or there could be other things that maybe don't get as much love or play or, or shine and they're doing just as great there, right? So research is one thing, but maybe there's a great history professor or, or some, there's a really great insect weaponry professor at the University of Montana. That's a great research topic. And that's something I've never heard of. That's a great program. Maybe we tell a story around that. The currency for the conversation around universities and colleges is different. And the marketing teams will have to get on board with the, the, these shifts of the, the story is authentic and real and tells the actual truth about the experience on the campus, if that makes sense. Sure. Mark, you're in the startup world in the education sector. When you're recruiting for, for staff at campus, is your employment brand around the journey of, hey, we're a startup, or do you lean into the education? Um, it, for us, it's, it's exactly both. 
people are compelled by the idea of working at a startup and the sort of romance or the, the idea that that provides, certainly the opportunity to be on what is hopefully a rocket ship. And gosh, is that equity going to be worth something that changes my life in five or 10 years? That's the thing. People, though, from outside of education also have a romantic notion of working in education. Like you've got lots of great tech marketers now and what's their job? Their job is to get more people to look at advertising or look at your app. And that's not ultimately motivating, but the idea of your customer being a student and the product that you're delivering as being something that like truly changes their life is like for folks that are listening to this, that might be your every day. But if you've been you know, working at an ad tech company or some other kind of group, it's pretty compelling. You get a lot of that sort of, you know, sort of there's a yeah, professional. Yeah. Can I, can I benefit, but also kind of the more emotional whole person, people, people are passionate about it. We also come without some of the challenges that the a school has, you know, Kate, you referenced policies. I actually don't even know if we have any policies on anything yet. Uh, we're so new, right? If you're, you know, Eric, you work in the marketing technology world, an institution may have all kinds of systems, maybe frustrating for a, a kind of a digital marketer to work at a particular school if there are limitations or structures on the kind of tools you can use. And, you know, I know from, you know, working with, you know, lots and lots and lots of digital marketers, like, you want control over your systems and your spend and your data so you can optimize and have your kind of have your hands on things. And so the ability to deliver that for someone is is can help keep them or help lose them if it's too frustrating. I think that is a big part of employment value proposition. It's the tools that you use, the actual, you know, the, the, the work environment that you come into from, from a marketing tech. I'm going to give you a, a plug, Kevin. Simpson Scarborough published a great white paper ebook yesterday. There was a great read. If you've got a chance, go and check it out. But it went into the MarTech stack. And that was an eye-opener to be like, okay, as an environment and technology, higher ed is behind the commercial world. And that is going to impact your employment value proposition and your, your ability to attract talent. But I just want to jump back to Eric and, and come back to Eric in the sense of, is this, is this your experience and has this been a typical journey for marketing teams in the sense of you have to hire not junior or inexperienced, but raw talent, train them up. They then get the key skills that they need in a certain tool, in a certain vertical, and then they leave to the commercial world. Do you think that's typical? How do you battle against it? Yeah. So having spoken to a lot of higher ed places, I think that Wharton is in a particular place with marketing technology. I don't even think that most higher ed organizations have a dedicated marketing technology team. And we've had one for about seven years, and we've had nine people on the team, mature technologists, very unusual. And we've been able to maintain that basically up until now. And so right now, we are beginning to lose people to some of the pressures we, we mentioned earlier, remote working or uh, opportunities for faster learning, faster growth uh, outside of the university area. So I'm sort of wondering if that's where we're going to wind up being, or if that's sort of the new reality of this is that we do hire more junior folks with the expectation that they're going to be there for 24, 36 months if we're lucky and move on. Personally, I feel very mentory to a lot of people. So I'm okay. And I like to see them kind of jump, jump out and, and move on. But of course, it's always, you know, it's a little hard to try to maintain a continuity without a core group of people. But I do think that that is definitely going to be 
a case where maybe people are cutting their teeth at universities and then moving on to maybe faster, better technologies. They think they can have it elsewhere. I was going to say too, and Kevin, you brought this up. You know, we were talking about employer brands and, and, you know, creating a brand for the staff that you have coming in. And, you know, one of the other things you had mentioned was culture, right? You have a culture uh, for these marketing teams that are very collaborative, typically very creative, you know, and again, you know, to Eric, and, and I would love to hear from you, Kate, as well Is you know, once you do bring someone into the team, you know, um, just from your perspective, even recently, I know we said we weren't going to say COVID very much, I'll be the first one to violate that right now. But how are you how are you trying to build a culture? Because again, my wife comes from from higher ed as well. And she said one of the things that at her institution was like the culture has totally been turned on its head because of COVID. And so, you know, as you are bringing new folks into the mix, you know, how what how are you trying to build a, a culture of collaboration, creativity, you know, despite the pressures that you're that everybody's really seeing right now? Sure. So I think actually that in some ways technology because of COVID, you know, here we are on Zoom, right? Having these conversations, we were, you know, restricted to our buildings and our spaces and our offices for a very long time with sort of no, we had no idea that we could do this uh, the way that we're doing it now. And so that culture, how that transitions, you know, how we transitioned online and now how we transition back into the office has given us an opportunity to choose the parts of it that we like and to stop doing the things that we didn't like. And I think that gives people a, you know, a little bit of power and freedom to you know, help define that and how it changes moving forward. I do think that the culture should play off of your university's culture, right, more broadly. But again, we're all decentralized. This is my fifth office at the University of Pittsburgh, and every culture has been different in every you know, office. It's really fascinating how that is driven by the people around you. And so being really thoughtful about who comes in and you know, as part of that space is really important in that recruitment. Eric, any thoughts on culture as well? I know you talked a little bit about um, mentorship and, and things of that nature, but maybe as assuming you've brought in some new folks uh, recently or semi-recently, how has that culture changed for you? I have to say maybe everything I've learned about culture, I've learned from the Dirty Dozen. So I'm not sure if I'm the, the best, um, but if, for those of you who don't remember that, me that that movie, basically you're trying to, World War II movie, taking a, a group of sort of disparate people and putting them into a common condition. I don't think they showered for like a month or something, basically so that there, there was, a, there was a, a commonality and a unifying factor. And, and I don't know how other people are doing it, but that's sort of what I have try to continue to nurture is this idea that we're a group here, the marketing technology team, we're going to be scrappy, we're going to figure it out, we're going to, you know, do what we need to do. Our motto, basically, go out and do amazing things and don't make us look like idiots. Like those are the parameters are pretty, pretty large parameters. So we're just trying to do interesting, neat things. And everybody gets a common say, everybody's opinion is respected. When everybody gets to, to comment, it's not super hierarchical. I want people to push back on me. That was sort of a very self-centered answer, but I'm not sure about how we do it with, with the larger team. And I know that at, at the marketing communications level, we're tr we try to build that, that MARCOM sense of, of unity and how we're doing it as well. You know, I came from uh, a university culture uh, community before I joined Simpson Scarborough and university communication can often be very reactive and like just trying to catch up with what is currently happening in the world. And I think when you have the right tools, whether it's MarTech, brand messaging, or otherwise, 
that allows you to be more proactive with your communication and get more manageability around your brand. So when you, when you have the right tools, that means you have to invite the right people in to manage those tools and let them do the work that they are there to do. So if you have data analysts and social listeners and all these other people who are keeping a close eye on the brand, then you can craft messaging that is more proactive than reactive. And I think higher ed so often gets caught on its heels because of not having those tools and those people, but also just because of the culture of communication there. Not everyone can afford all the tools like we mentioned before. And of course, there are also situations that arise on a campus that no matter what you are listening to or watching, you can't really plan for. Uh, those, are the, those are the outliers. Ultimately, I think building a team and setting them up for success and allowing them to do what they are there to do and to ex express their expertise is part of uh, making a really collaborative and creative culture, at least in my opinion. You know, I'd like to follow up on that and, and suggest one thing that schools in particular could think about from a culture perspective and taking advantages of some of the pillars that make a university unique. Some of those features are no longer as attractive. We covered some of these things earlier. Kate, you're at an unusually beautiful campus that most people I would imagine would love to spend time on, but, but maybe not all the time anymore. And so that's less of a, an attraction potentially. And, and, and frankly, most schools aren't you know, they don't have quite that. Some is the sort of lifestyle. Maybe that's not as motivating. The thing that schools are, in fact, great at is education and teaching. And I think we probably all know that that's something that your marketing teams are desperately wanting and interested in training, learning new skills, learning new technology. And so I think if we could all, you know, folks are able to commit to investing in especially their junior people, giving them some flexibility to direct their own paths. I think today's, especially junior employees, are, are, are so thirsty for, for that sort of investment and attention. That's a place that we could spend time and, and resources to build stronger cultures. As a proud University of Pittsburgh graduate, I can confirm that it is, in fact, a beautiful, beautiful campus. <laughs> Just to change it, Kevin, you made a, you made a comment there that, that everything's marketing and at the core of that for universities is the brand. Now, depending on who you speak to within universities, brand can be a nebulous topic. It can be different. We, we published a great article on Volt um, about is a university a, a product or a service? Um, and it's interesting, but I'd love to hear from you from what you think about brand uh, and, and how it affects or impacts uh, the institutions um, and the places they work with. So, Kate, let's let's start with you. How do you? How do you it's, it's not a small question. No, and one I am very passionate about. So, I feel like you might have to bring in the cane for me to stop talking. I think I say it, you know, multiple times a week. A brand is not a logo or a tagline. And so often, it's very easy to go back to those things in the university setting. They're so visible. You know, people can sort of grasp that thing and hold it. But what I continue to repeat and I have learned from, you know, the great partners that I have worked with in the past is that the brand is a lens. It's a way for us to, you know, see the world and talk about ourselves very broadly. That messaging is really important to the work that we do. And earlier, Kevin said, you know, it's not a brand for students and a brand for faculty necessarily. It's a brand for all. And so the most important thing to me is that your brand is rooted in truth. And that that truth comes from research you've done with your students, faculty, staff, alumni. They need to be part of that broad process because once you have that buy-in, 
it's actually really easy and super fun to promote the university through that brand lens because people buy into that, those concepts. Like, yes, I get that. I live that. When I walk across that stage and I get my degree, I am that. And that's a really powerful statement. And so I do think brand is what we need to be. It needs to be authentic and it needs to differentiate us. But when used correctly is very powerful. Interesting point there, Kate, when you say that when people walk and they go, no, I am that, that's what I am. Where does the brand then come from? Is is it organically developed with the group of people that are there? It's almost a chicken and an egg. Yeah, that's a fascinating way to think about it. It it is the people, right? The people that have come before us and for a university like ours, which was founded in 1787, history is very much a part of who we are, but we are also forward-thinking you know, the innovation and the leadership are leads in our personality. So we don't want to forget who we are and where we came from. But we also have a group of students on campus who are really thinking about the future and faculty who are doing research in spaces we can't even sort of comprehend. So I think it's a mixture of all of the above. And that's the kind of people you want. At least that's who we want here. We're looking for people to come and join the fun. We're not going to stop and smile and welcome you because we're really busy. But, you know, if you're that type of person, come on board. And it, and it varies by institution and, you know, depending on the age and the place and all those things. I was just going to say the brand is really interesting in higher ed because I think it gets misused or misperceived somewhat often in that um, a brand message can fix a real life issue on campus. And that's not really the case. Uh, as we move into the future, these two paths of brand and experience are going to be more <laughs> intrinsically linked. And so when you say things like we're trying to recruit a more diverse class, and then you have these issues on a campus that don't reflect true desire to recruit those folks, then that is not a true and authentic brand. And so when we think about brand, especially in the space of higher education, It's about a true real life experience of what happens on your campus and then how you message that. It is not the reverse. In that regard, things can crumble pretty fast. And so it's about, you know, sticking to what you believe in and who you are and not trying to be like everyone else because they already exist. I think it's funny because done a lot of discovery visits for a lot of that, a lot of different universities and without a doubt, 100% of the time I hear we have small class sizes and a beautiful campus that is no longer a differentiator, right? Things that got us here are not the things that will get us to next. The conversation has to change on the higher ed side in order for brands to be heard because there is so much more noise, right? Like, you know, companies dropping degree requirements, other companies setting up their own kinds of, you know, secondary education or higher ed, whatever, like crash courses and what building you to be the employee that we need. Those are all competitors. It's not just the other school down the road or on the other side of the state. There are more competitors now. And so there are more messages that you have to cut through. And with a disconnected brand that isn't living its own truth in the market, there's no way to be successful in that space. And I just want to quickly touch on what Kevin said about, you know, that has to be the brand experience. One of the more powerful things I've been part of here at Pitt is when we take the group that is doing the recruiting, our admissions team, and we put them with the student affairs team that is actually delivering, right? So that we're writing the checks, but they have to cash them. And we talk through, okay, here's what we say about Pitt. And they talk through about, here's what we do at Pitt and where do things align and where don't they align? And then you make adjustments accordingly. So Eric, interesting to know then, you know, you have your brand, Wharton's obviously a very strong brand in, in its space, but how do you activate that brand? You have students, faculty, dean, marketing professionals, 
all access to social media, tweeting, there's content out there. What are some of the, the ways that, that you activate it, control it? Do you even need to control the communication and messaging from that point of view? Well, I want to be transparent and say I'm definitely probably not the right person at marketing communications to answer this question because brand is something that's always been very amorphous to me. And although I am a senior director of marketing strategy and operations, I come from a technology background. So brand is very, very mushy. Um, it feels like you're asking eyewitnesses about a crime and you get, you know, 14 different, different answers. One thing I have definitely noticed, though, is that it's to some of you guys have touched on it. It's the idea of sort of just the words are don't really matter that in that way. Like everybody is a global transformative leader, right? Everyone. And if there was a magic word that was going to distinguish you, somebody else would be using it the very next day. So it really does have to be a bit more uh, about the actions and how and trying to, I think, create. Let me just, uh, I guess, create some parameters that you're kind of asking people to stay within. We're, for instance, uh, marketing communications provides templates for a variety of, of things, whether it's PowerPoints or for social media, there are some templates that you can use and just ask that people are using these and trying to maintain it. But I mean, part of the part of what makes universities unique is that you don't get to control all of the messaging of all the constituents. You don't get to say what the students say. You don't get to say what the faculty say. And so that makes for some interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting happenings on campus at, at times. But I'm going to leave that answer there because I'm probably the least qualified to say anything more. More than almost any product or service that exists in the commercial world, probably in, in higher ed, marketing has the least impact on your school's brand, right? Your brand has been around for 200 years, 300 years, in some cases, 400 years. Maybe a new school is 100 years old. And so that's generations of experiences with your brand as a student, as a viewer of a sports team, as someone who sees the campus, who works with your graduates. It's just a, it's a, it's a million touch points that drive a school's brand. And, and, and frankly, the marketing's ability, the campaign you came up with for this year, it's not really changing dramatically the perceptions that people have about what makes your institution unique. And, and higher ed is also unusual in that, uh, how many colleges are there? 3,000, 4,000, whatever, whatever that, that's a, that's a very competitive space. And so trying to, dif are you in, in, in trying to differentiate, truly differentiate yourself in a space like that is, uh, is quite a, is quite a challenge. I think one of the things that you can probably focus on a lot is outcomes. And for me, that's very concrete. Like, what are the outcomes of the alumni? What are the alumni doing? Where are they going? What are those stories um, that, that we want to tell? To me, that seems the most powerful way is to connect alumni outcomes with prospective students. And a lot of the other stuff that you mentioned, Mark, it, it's true. It's, it's, it's all there. Wharton UPenn, for instance, as an example, they've been around for hundreds of years. We can adjust by degrees but not massive degrees. I really do think it's those alumni outcomes that can tell the story that you might want to tell. One of the best, simplest definitions of brand I've ever heard is it's, it's the promise and it's the performance. And so I was going to ask, again, Kevin would love to hear from you too. When you talk about performance, you know, uh, Eric, you mentioned uh, outcomes for alumni. What are some other ways that your institutions or, you know, peers institutions are actually putting measurement to brand or the success of that brand? Well, uh, this definitely moves into 
uh, the whole external affairs and alumni area, which as Kate will attest to, is very probably separate from it, from, from what we're doing in Marcom um, oftentimes, but they have lots of quantified uh, aspects of their alumni surveys and how we're looking at, you know, what jobs and titles are people do, making, what, what's the average starting salary of somebody when they come from an MBA program and so on and so forth. And how did that change from what they were doing before that program? One of the things I'm, I'm always curious about is the expansion of the definition of success when it comes to outcomes. I think outcome stories are really, really important. But so often in alumni centers, uh, you see that like the Nike and the Google and the, you know, the JP Morgan Chase, which are all great career paths, but there are also people who want to be teachers and social workers, and those are versions of success as well. And so making sure that everyone sees themselves or whatever version of success feels most right to them in those stories is going to be really important, especially for the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece, because not everybody wants to be a bank executive. I know I don't. Great point, Kevin. I think in addition to the alumni piece, we we try to look at revenue and reputation. So, you know, revenue certainly coming from the philanthropy and the enrollment, and those are very measurable, you know, pieces that we can look at. And then the reputation, hopefully you're doing some sort of brand awareness surveys regularly. You're looking at rankings, Kevin, sorry, but leadership is still looking at rankings. And so I think that, you know, those are two things that you can quantify. They're not ideal, but they are also helpful in a sense of getting people to buy into that concept, right? So one of the things I loved when I, I spent five years in our admissions office was that we were all very clearly working toward an enrollment goal. And that little lever that you pulled at your desk that day did in fact make a difference. And you felt like part of a bigger picture. And, and that really pushes brand too. And universities have a unique sense and we can build that pride in place, you know, just like I'm, I'm part of this really larger thing, right? It's like the, the greater good. And, you know, Brad, one thing I'll, I'll think about also when you talk about outcomes and then something that we'll be focused on over time is how much debt are students leaving with when they graduate and how long might it take them to unburden themselves of, of that debt? That's certainly a, an angle and an approach that we think will be important for certainly a segment of students who affordability, you know, is a massive issue. Uh, and so for us as an outcome and as a way to, to talk about how, how little debt, you know, you can leave students with can be important. One of the best examples of that to me is um, Paul Quinn College uh, in Texas. Uh, they commit to, you know, you'll graduate here with less than $10,000 in debt and have a high quality education. There are other examples all across the country. Not obviously not every, every school can do that, but it's a messaging point that makes sense, especially to a generation that is very, very focused on affordability and debt and not leaving um, in the hole as deeply as I was. <laughs> yeah. It's great. We've mentioned outcomes and, and how that impacts the brand. It would be great to then talk about the part that's the promise and the students when they're on that enrollment journey uh, and how that promise and that brand impacts them at different steps. I'm interested to know, do you have data? Do you have points where you measure the impact of, of that, that measurement? And if you are using data at that promise part and in that enrollment part, how are you doing it? Eric, I'll, I'll, I'll go to you first. Okay, so just so I'm clear of the question, it's are, are, are we using data to quantify what exactly? Quantify the actual promise of the journey, what you, what you think Wharton is as a school, what you're presenting to them, and does that promise then match up in their, in their student journey? 
Like, is there a, do you have insight into that, that journey for the students? I would say that sort of, again, this begins, this crosses over into a lot of areas which are difficult to try to keep data from prospective through to alumni. In fact, I don't know of anybody who's doing that in the, at least the um, public technology space. I think that really the, the only thing that we largely have is anecdotal information and qualified information about what how people are responding to surveys afterwards. In fact, that might even be a question on some of the surveys. You know, how how much did mm. uh, Wharton, in our case, you know, live up to the expectations or the promise? And directly asking people, um, not necessarily keeping it in the system, but more of a survey and trying to keep track of it that way, um, just as at least a touch a touch point. So that's probably not a very satisfactory answer. But I'm not exactly sure if we have the. Mm. But how then are you using data then in your admissions funnel then in a, in a broader sense? Okay, well, now I'll be back on terra <laughs> firma. Um, so we are definitely uh, using data in, in, the, in the journey for, at least for the graduate students um, for MBA and executive MBA and some other products uh, that are not program related products. So what we have been able to do at Warden is create a full funnel uh, attribution technology stack from first touch uh, through to enrollment and be able to directly measure uh, often where where every dollar is spent. We wind up using first touch of how we're bringing people into the leads because it's um, unlike a, a widget that sits on a shelf for six, six weeks before it moves. This is oftentimes a 12, 18, 24 month cycle or lead, but when someone first kind of decides to, to investigate and then actually makes its way, makes their way through to applying and enrolling, there may be a 12-month gap at some point between the first time and the second time. So it's very hard to try to get any kind of reliable, let's say, multi-touch attribution. And to be honest, I'm not even sure how much I believe in all in that. So what we really have been trying to do is focus on how we're bringing our leads in and then how are we using data and technology to nurture those leads, but we're trying to qualify them into certain programs. And I think that's where we're, we're using a lot of data now is how are we going to try to help the admissions teams nurture the qualified people all the way through to enrollment and actually not just numbers, but the actual types of people that we're trying to, are we looking for military veterans? Are we looking for people of color? Are we looking for women? The Warden MBA just passed 50% of its, of its um, incoming classes is women. So how can, what can we do, do to actually um, double down on those and use technology to help uh, amplify those successes? And that's where we're able to have the most influence. Kate, how, how is data impacting your enrollment and your marketing team then? So uh, in similar ways, right, we're using that uh, leads really important. We're seeing that information. I think one thing about especially the undergrad audience, but we're, we're also exploring this for the graduate audience now is the personalization. It's just an expectation for this generation. And so the more we know about them, you know, what can we get from before COVID, it was test taking, and now test taking has become optional, um, right? So we're seeing all of these data points as email open data changes, right? We're, we're kind of losing a foothold on some of the information that could drive the journeys, but we continue to try to find ways to get at the things that, you know, Eric talked about. It's not just the data, it's the types of people. Really fascinating project we did with undecided students a couple of years ago, you know, asking them to basically swipe left or swipe right on the types of 
um, interests they had. Uh, this was a project with Ology that was a lot of fun. And, you know, they know how to swipe right and swipe left. And we took from that information that we could use when they visited campus. So if you show an interest in the outdoors, when you get here, here's a, a coupon to go kayaking on our rivers, that sort of thing. So where we just we just keep looking for the data. I, I think this is going to be a long time journey. And Mark, to you in the sense of because you're in a startup and a small team, you're almost you almost have the marketing and admissions funnel both. So you see it from start to finish, which I would say is almost a startup commercial model. Talk us through the benefits and the data that you have in that model. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, you know, one of the goals I had in place and starting out is laying that foundation for uh, sort of a full funnel attribution model where we are able to track you know, not necessarily everything, but the things that are the most important. I tend to agree with Eric. I think you can you can measure everything, but not everything truly, truly makes a difference. And so, but understanding where folks are coming in from, what are the decision points um, and building out from the ground up from the beginning, uh, a tech stack that allows us to do that, well, I think will be important long-term. You know, one thing that you said at the beginning that was interesting was sort of the idea of like kind of quantifying and measuring the brand impact on sort of the, the funnel. As brands merge with digital performance marketing, I think uh, a lot of us will see that your brand message and what resonates as a university brand message is not necessarily what might move the needle from a performance marketing perspective. If you're marketing an MBA program and you uh, are willing to waive the GMAT, uh, that's going to drive performance in your marketing funnel, but it might make your uh, the the brand uh, marketers sweat a little bit that that message is out there. Um, so an interesting balance to kind of trigger what's on brand for your institution and what actually would be effective from a digital performance perspective. All right. Well, thank you all so much for the, uh, the conversation. I wish we had more time. Um, we are about to hit our 60 minutes. And so any final thoughts, uh, Kevin, I'm going to start with you, but uh, just a couple of seconds, you know, what, it, what, what gets you excited about this space, you know, kind of going forward in just a few words. Yeah, just uh, uh, the merge of uh, message and experience. I think that's the most important part. Kate? There's so much, I've been nodding my head the whole conversation. So thank you for having me and these great panelists. I, uh, I think this digital transformation, the opportunities that we are actually talking about combining marketing and technology in very strong ways. And I need to go Google Eric and everything he's doing at Wharton, but you know, there, there's so much opportunity and we, higher ed marketing is finally arriving. Fantastic. Eric? Yep, sure. I really, I, I agree with Kate on, on that with like, we're sitting right at this, right at the beginning of this sort of merger of what can we do with, with technology and what does the future look like and how can we help influence it for positive outcomes? And Mark, the last word with you. Yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm looking forward to the challenge of, you know, combining hopefully great marketing, great technology to help more students access an education that's, that's, that's super high quality and affordable for them to, you know, help, help that group of kids. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you all so much. This has been a, a really great conversation. I wish we had more time. 
huge thanks to Kevin, uh, my co-moderator here today for, for helping with the conversation and, and again to all of you. As a reminder, this session is going to be reposted on Volt.edu after the event along with this full student-centered approach to higher ed marketing white paper. It's going to feature deeper perspectives of all the panelists that you've heard from today. So again, if you have questions though, please drop us a note. We're happy to connect you with any of the panelists here today. Thank you again for joining us. Have a great day.